Thanks for, Thanks for listening to the, the Boots Podcast. Podcast. Hey, thanks for coming back. If you're a subscriber, I appreciate those new reviews on Apple Podcasts after last week's episode with Chris Allen. Those are very helpful when we're talking about the ability to reach more listeners in our veteran community. If you're new to the Boots Off podcast, welcome. I am so glad to have you with us today. You know, it's already tough getting back to talking to people, many of whom I've never met before they are guests on this podcast. I didn't know Chris last week. We ended up talking for three hours when we recorded his episode. But while it's challenging for me to get back into conversing and coaxing the introvert that is rooted deep into my soul, these are very important conversations. They're important to me. The guests tell me after the record light switches off how much they appreciate these talks. And of course, we all hope that what we're doing is providing value to you and those you share this with. All of that is especially true with this episode. September is National Suicide Prevention Month. So it's a pleasure to welcome this week's guest. She's a former Air Force broadcast journalist. Unfortunately, while we ran in the same circles for a few years, our paths never crossed. Until now, Victoria Seacrest, separated from the Air Force, stepped away from the camera in the radio studio, and she's now a marriage and family therapist who works in the suicide prevention world. And she has some fantastic information in this episode, some staggering statistics, and really good advice that could 100% help you and me both, whether it's with ourselves or a friend, family member, whoever. This was a difficult conversation to have. Just making certain words come out of my mouth in this context was not easy. But let's get to it. Here's the Boots Off Podcast, episode 11, with Victoria Sechrist. You separated in 2016. When did you enlist? Yeah, so I joined September 1st, 2009. So I had graduated high school two months prior. So just really young, you know, fresh out of high school, went to boot camp, and then ended up, you know, five years out of the seven years I served, I was living overseas which was a really great experience. Um, But, you know, I initially joined because my dad and my stepbrother, they were in the military. And so just kind of this accepted, it was accepted that that is also what I was going to do. And then, you know, my school would be covered. I might have the opportunity to travel, which I did. I've been to 25 different countries. Um, You know, I've been all around the world, which has really shaped and informed my perspective on just human nature, human behavior. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of how, how it started. Um, you know, I was thinking back to my military experience and, you know, at 18, you don't know anything. And now being almost 30, it's so weird to think, you know, I had this whole career, you know, that started at 18, you know, been around the world, was supervising people in my early 20s, not knowing what I was doing or not even fully knowing who I was as a person. Um, so it's been a, a wild adventure to say the least. Yeah. And that's definitely interesting. You, you mentioned supervising when you're in your early twenties and you get a little bit of training on that, but you're dealing, you know, when you're dealing with an actual human 
being with all their own ideas and upbringing. Uh, it's not just black and white. There are so many factors to consider when you're actually shaping someone else's career and responsible for the day-to-day operations in your office for the, a military organization. It's a lot to, to handle. I definitely had a lot of lessons, you know, firsthand lessons as a supervisor. I can just, uh, there's so many things going through my head right now, different memories. I'm like, man, I wish I could have done that better. And yes, <laughs> I have a lot bad. of those thoughts too. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad because it does shape you. You do get better, but you can't go back and fix necessarily all your mistakes. And you just, I keep thinking like, man, I hope that person doesn't still think I was such a horrible supervisor because <laughs> it was my first time. Right. And for me, I ended up supervising quite a few people who were older than me and, you know, a few years older than, than I was. And that was difficult too, because you, you feel that dynamic because it, you know, you have that mindset of, okay, like I'm in this position of power, whether you understand what that means or not, but yet this person has more life experience. Maybe they already went to college and had a four-year degree. They've, you know, been living on their own. And I went from living at home to now I'm in the military, living on my own, um, having to figure everything out. And, you know, you have leaders who can shape and inform your experience but how do you know they're a good leader? How do you know that they're giving you the tools that you need to succeed? Yeah. And you said you grew up military as well. So where did you live? Um, did you go overseas as a, as a kid? So my dad joined the army when I was about five or six years old and um, we were stationed at Fort Drum in Watertown, New York. And so I went from living in California to living in upstate New York where you get feet of snow, like lake effect snow in the wintertime, it's freezing cold, um, which, you know, that was an adjustment as a kid. Um, And so my dad was there, I don't know how many years, and then he ended up going reserves. And um, so I only went to New York. (laughs) So nowhere fun and exciting. Um, and then, yeah, so I lived in California, New York, and then I moved to Washington state with my dad later okay. on. So, wow. So you did a whole triangle of the country and then you enlisted yourself and, uh, you said your first assignment was in South Carolina. Yes. So <laughs> Sumter, South Carolina, Shaw air force base. Um, you know, when when I was in tech school, my friends were getting their assignments. Some people received Germany, Japan, and then I was like, where the heck is Sumter, South Carolina? Um, I was not excited about it whatsoever because I was like, I joined to travel and go overseas. Um, but once I got there, you know, you try to make the best out of any assignment. I learned I was in a public affairs shop. Um, so, you know, having other people who had been in the military for years and years, um, my supervisor at that time had been in Japan, had been at AFN. And so I had a really great supervisor to learn from. Um, but thankfully I was not in South Carolina for very long. I was there less than a year and I received orders to Korea. Um, so I went to Kunsan Air Force Base and that was a AFN slot. 
which, you know, that's why you join it, you know, is to go to AFN, to go have a radio show, have news stories that are going to be on TV. You know, it might be the military TV, but still that's a big deal when you're in. And I mean, when I went over there when I was 19, I think, to Korea, 19 or 20, something like that. Um, and so it was new, it was exciting, it was scary, because um, that naval ship had just been bombed recently um, in South Korea. And there's just a lot of unknowns. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, my first country that I went to was Mexico. Um, I had been to Canada before, which isn't that different at times um, to just how our lifestyle is in America. And then suddenly now I'm going to South Korea. Yeah, I was going to ask how that was, what, what you felt when you, when that was the assignment you received was South Korea. Because I hear a lot of good things about South Korea. On the other side, I hear a lot about how there are so many exercises. And yes. when people talk about the negatives, it's always the exercises, I think. I enjoyed Japan. I was there for four years. Probably not too much different from Korea. I've never been to Korea myself. You also have kind of a unique career in your seven years that you bounced from one AFN to another AFN and then remained overseas after that. So was there a, diff a big difference in being in Korea and going to Kaiserslautern after that? Oh, definitely. Being in South Korea, since it is just a one year stint for most people in the Air Force, um, the atmosphere is completely different. Um, so I guess, yeah, one thing people don't understand about being, well, one, a lot of people don't understand that the military has broadcast journalists in it and that, you know, our job is to tell the Air Force story or, you know, on a larger scale, just the military story. And so when you're at an AFN, you're like a mini celebrity and, you know, for that community and everyone knows you, you have, I would have random people come up to me like, Hey, um, I hear you on the radio. I have this really great story you could do. So at AFN, a lot of times the stories come to you, whereas in public affairs, you're searching and having to stand up for yourself to be like, you know, I'm not the media. Like I'm in uniform. Yeah, I'm allowed true. to be here. Um, but, you know, my name is Victoria Seacrest and that name stands out a lot <laughs> for various reasons as everyone different things pop up for everyone when they hear my name. And so <laughs> my name stood out. People knew who I was, whether that's a good thing or bad thing. And you're part, when you're AFN, like you really are part of this military community because you're pushing out the news. You know, you know, even though we play some, the same songs over and over again on the radio, that was still like a break for some people during their day. You know, hearing you know, English on the radio in Germany. And so being in Germany, it was a larger community. There's Air Force there, there's Army there, you're serving, um, you know, both of those military. Um, you know, I worked with people in the Army, both in Korea and in Germany. Um, so for work, it's totally different. I was in a bigger shop, more established shop. They had been there for over 60 years or they were just celebrating 60 years when I arrived there. Um, but then you have the cultural aspect of being in South Korea compared to Germany. So, you know, in Asian countries, 
respect plays a large part in their culture and you're able to show that with different gestures. So one thing I kept doing when I went to Germany is when I would hand over my credit card to someone, you, you go like this with your arm, like your arm is touching your other arm because it's a sign of respect. Um, whereas in Germany, people are very direct, blunt. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do ask them how they're doing, they're, they think you actually want to know. So they're going to stand there and like have a conversation with you and tell them, you know, details about their life. Um, so culturally, you know, it's very different being in those two countries. Um, and I lived off base in Germany. So I lived on the economy, you know, had to find a place to live. You know, you enjoy going to restaurants, grocery stores, that everything's in German. Um, so it's, it's a lot to handle. <laughs> especially when you're in your early twenties. Yeah. And then you come back to the States. Well, in your case, you didn't come back to the States from there. You went on to England, which probably is even, you know, more different from South Korea and Germany. They've got their own culture in, in England. And uh, so you actually spent five years overseas uh, altogether. And did you, do you think that that had any role in shaping, you know, who you are today, that five years overseas? Oh, a hundred percent. It did. I would not be the same person if it hadn't been for my experiences. Um, you know, I was able to travel extensively, whether it was the air force sending me or it was just my own personal travel. I, you know, I really tried to take advantage of experiencing different cultures. And, you know, I say this often, but the one thing that I noticed traveling from country to country was, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans and we all have the same basic needs and we're all, you know, trying to survive in this world. Um, you know, living in the States, growing up in the States, there are certain things that you that are normal for you and you think that applies to everyone else in the world. And it really does not. Um, you know, I didn't realize how large um, Islam is all over the world. Like I think it's what the second largest religion in the world. And, you know, I had just heard, you know, a certain narrative in the United States. And then I traveled and I'm like, Oh, this is just, you know, this is part of their life. This is their culture. And there's nothing wrong with their culture. It's just different from mine. We're in the, a job, a career field as, as public affairs, where you're learning so much about other people. And I think that was one of the things that I enjoyed the most, which is why I wanted to start a podcast like, like this, where I'm still able to talk to people about their stories and figure out why, They've done why they went into the military, what they're doing now with that experience, whether it's, you know, something that branches off of their service or if it's a completely different direction from what they were doing while they served. And I, I want to know, so did you enjoy your time as a broadcast journalist in public affairs? Is that something that you considered continuing to do? So I really enjoyed my job in the Air Force, you know, I really did believe I had the best job that you could have in the military. And I still believe that. 
Um, I was able to meet so many different people, um, people in different career fields in the military, understand what they do, and then, you know, being able to share that with the rest of the world. And, you know, whether the rest of the world was watching or not, I think it was still good to get that information out. Because if you just ask a you know, random person in your community who is not associated with the military, they have no idea what you're doing on the military installation. They might have their own theories or conspiracies, but oh, they yeah. really don't know. But it's actually pretty simple to find out. You just go to their base website or social media. You can see videos of what they're doing. Now, some things you might not know because that's classified. Um, but just to get a gist of what it's like to be in the military, that information is already out there. So I did enjoy my job as a broadcaster, but I also knew that I was not going to pursue that as a career, as a civilian. Um, people in my life were surprised by that because they thought, oh, you'd be a great anchor, um, you know, this or that. But they didn't understand that you don't just get out and become a news anchor. You know, you are a one-man band producing, you know, finding the story. I mean, you know this more than I do since you have done this on the outside. Um, but I just knew that I wasn't passionate enough about being a broadcaster um, to be competitive on the outside. And I think just from my experiences and being in the military, it was very important that I'm doing something that I enjoy and that I love. And I don't want to have to sacrifice my well-being, my mental health um, for a job that I don't actually want to do. You know, one of the passions I think you must have developed came from your time as a victim advocate, right? Yeah. So, well, you know, broadcasting still plays a role in my career shift to a marriage and family therapist because it's still the world of communication. And being a therapist, you're still in this world of communication. You're just applying it through a different lens. So that did play a role as well as being a victim advocate in the military. So going through the training, being there to support people after they've just experienced the worst day of their life and they're reliving it over and over again, um, being able to support them, whether it's if they're in the hospital, you know, going to the hospital, talking with them, providing them with resources of next steps, how they can be supported. And I, I enjoyed doing that. I was very involved with the Sapper office at RAF Lake and Heath, um, promoted a lot for them through public affairs. But in some ways for me, it was still limiting. I wanted to do more. Like I wanted to be able to accompany people on their journey through this hell um, more than just giving them resources. Because you're not able to form an opinion when you're in the role of an advocate. You're really just there for support and resources. For people who might not understand what a victim advocate does in the sexual assault prevention response programs. Can you explain that a little bit about that role? Yes. So every military installation has a SAPR office. And if someone, whether they are a military member or a spouse, has been sexually assaulted, they're able to go to this office and they can report um, 
a restricted or an unrestricted report. An unrestricted report would then start an investigation through, um, through the base, through OSI. Um, whereas a restricted report stays confidential where people can go and get the support and resources they need without having an investigation starting. So a victim advocate, volunteer victim advocate, it is their role to support that individual from the start, um, whether it's um, you know, going to mental health with them, just waiting for them while they're at their appointment, providing them with additional resources that they need, whether it's on-base resources or community resources to get help and support. And so that sounds like at times, I mean, this is a voluntary position that you've taken, but probably at times can feel like a second full-time job. Yeah, it did at times. Um, You know, your unit has to sign off to allow you to go through this training because it is, it it can be a large time requirement and not all career fields can accommodate you being gone potentially for, you know, one to six hours. Um, And thankfully, you know, I was in a position where I was able to, to volunteer to be part of that program. And I really enjoyed it. It, it gave me the sense that I was continuing to do something for the greater good, something that was bigger than myself. You know, a lot of people might say that about the military, but sometimes working in public affairs, you don't see that immediate impact of the work that you're doing. And, you know, sometimes even, you know, people make fun of you say that you're not in the real military, you know, they have nicknames for you. And so I felt like I was doing good in that position. And so that made such an impact on you that you actually wanted to stay in that line of work? Yeah, so that um, was part of the inspiration to, you know, leave the military, go back to school, earn my master's degree, and pursue a career in therapy. And initially I did think, oh, you know, I want to you know, work in the line of, you know, people who are survivors or victims of sexual abuse. Um, and I continued that work when I, when I separated from the military. Um, but since then, that has actually evolved. And so how has that, how has that evolved from sexual assault prevention to what your focus is today? It can be, it can be challenging to work in the line where you're constantly speaking with people who have been sexually assaulted, sexually abused. Sometimes they've, you know, they maybe have childhood experiences and then they're um, re-victimized as adults. And, you know, I would suspect that the burnout rate for that field is pretty high um, and you have to take good care of yourself. And I had some things happen in my personal life where it just got to be a little too much to handle, a little too close to home. And so I, around that same time, I started working for a nonprofit and I was um, helping them implement the Zero Suicide Initiative, which is um, nationally and internationally recognized for being, you know, best practice model to use for suicide care in a medical setting. And you know, people who have been sexually abused are at a higher 
um, they have a higher risk of attempting suicide. So in a way, I've, it's evolved or shifted to where maybe I'm not directly working, like focusing just on sexual abuse, um, but now working on something that can be an outcome of someone who has experienced um, that type of trauma. So I feel like in, in a way, the work I do has expanded to the general broad term of trauma and not just focusing on one aspect of that. And so this was something, back to your career um, in the transition period. So you had separated actually out of England. Yes. And so what was, what was that like as, as a service member to be overseas for five years and I don't know, had you taken vacations back to the States in that time? I, I had, but not that many, maybe once a year, maybe not even that frequently. You know, it's a, it's a long distance to travel. It's expensive um, to travel back to the States from being in an overseas location. So it really felt like, you know, I, there were five years and I wasn't there. So what was that like to just leave that life behind, that military career behind from England and then find a place in the U.S. to plant your feet? So separating from the military in general is very challenging. And then, you know, add in the distance of being overseas and the extra paperwork that you have to do and, you know, hoping your household goods you know, arrive in the same condition they left in your car. Um, it was extremely stressful. I pride myself that I'm an organized person, but throughout that whole process, things went wrong. Um, you know, not getting the proper paperwork to ship my car, having delays in that process, you know, going to my final out-processing appointment and not having all my paperwork, which was I just couldn't believe it. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I always have everything. I try to always have everything. Um, you know, having issues with my landlord who did not want to give me my security deposit back because she was trying to squeeze all the money she could get out of me. Um, so before I even left England, there were so many challenges and I had already set myself up. So, okay, I'm, I, I can decide for the first time in my life where I want to live and I'm gonna to go to Fort Collins, Colorado. I had visited a few years prior. I loved the sunshine. You know, after living in England where the average days of sunlight is only 100, I needed the sunshine. Like I just knew I couldn't go to Washington State where I have family. It was not gonna be sunny enough for me. Um, and so I was already signed up to start classes at the very beginning of 2017 at Colorado State University. And I left England at the very end of September of 2016. So I had this period where I guess I considered it to be like this transition period of I'm going to go back to the States, visit family and friends who I haven't seen in a long time, um, figure out where I'm going to live in Colorado, um, get all of that situated. But the transitioning period is a lot longer <laughs> than just a month or a few months. I feel like I struggled with this transition from being an active duty um, military member 
to a veteran, whatever that means to me, because it's, it's so different for everyone of what that label means. And yeah, I, I struggled with that for at least a year of questioning my identity, who I was, having to reconcile with, you know, experiences that I had in the military. Um, you question everything and you feel like you don't belong. When I was put in social situations, once I was in Colorado, I would hold back what I would say because all of my experiences were about traveling overseas. And it made me feel like I didn't, like I didn't want people to perceive me as someone who thought I was better than other people just because I've had these experiences. You know, oftentimes if you talk to someone who, and they've traveled a lot, you think, oh, they have all this money to go travel. And it's like, well, no, I don't. I just was put in this position where that's where I lived. Mm -hmm. um, so there were, it was challenging socially with meeting new people, not being able to share, um, you know, backgrounds or, you know, struggling to find similarities, um, you know, questioning my identity, um, having friendships fall apart when I separated, um, or, you know, having friendships change because now I'm not in the military and my friends who are in the military, they're still going about their busy daily lives. And there is just so much change all at once. And it's overwhelming. Well, and so you went from being a, an airman in England to straight to being a college student mm -hmm. in, in Colorado. And, mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I can see what you're, what you're saying with that. That's part of why I think I stuck with the reserve myself. I still can't detach myself completely from that military life. I grew up, I've been, I consider myself to be like a lifelong service member in a way. Like I, I served coming straight out of the womb, you know, as, <laughs> as a dependent. Um, and it's just all I've, all I've ever known. So I still get to, as a reservist, kind of hang on to that a little bit, you know, even a weekend out of the month, like you put the uniform on and it, it's comfortable. It's familiar. Um, and what I've found is that a lot of people as civilians, they, they love to hear about my experiences overseas. Um, and I do still feel some of that arrogance kind of creep in like, Oh, when I was in Japan, you know, I, I covered stories in Nepal and Australia and the Philippines and Singapore, all these amazing places, but I don't ever feel like I'm oversharing because people are all just, they're asking more about these things. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I'm not a very social person myself. So I, there are probably things that, that you've experienced as a civilian that I can't really uh, relate to? Well, even just, you know, the gender difference. You know, when I go places with my boyfriend, they think he's the veteran. And so mm -hmm. there's this, there's this whole dynamic that women who, whether you're active duty or a veteran experience, especially if your significant other is a man, where they automatically assume you're a dependent or you're not the veteran. And, um, and so I think that, you know, played a role too in 
my experiences of separating and trying to figure out, okay, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this work on the outside? Because, you know, 18, I had everything taken care of, cared of. Like I had medical, dental, I had a place to work. They were paying me, you know, every, it's almost like you're in this little cocoon, like everything is taken care of and you're safe. And getting out of the military is this giant risk. And when you're getting out, people don't necessarily support you on that decision. Um, for me, I didn't feel supported. You know, people tell you whether they're higher ups or not, oh, you're not gonna find a job as a civilian, it's so hard. You know, you're not gonna get paid well. Um, and I was listening to them until I came to the realization, how do you know you're in the military? You're not a civilian. You haven't explored that terrain. You haven't taken that risk. Getting out of the military is a risk. I don't think people realize that um, because sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, you're always going to fail and not everyone is as resilient to pull themselves back up, keep trying, try something else. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, so, so really, despite there being a transition assistance program that is designed to guide you to civilian life in whatever way that is, um, mostly the focus tends to be on resume building and job interviews, but you're still kind of left out on your own to figure everything out. Um, whether it's, you know, finding that job, uh, building a network of people, uh, wherever you end up going, cause not everyone's going to stay in that community right outside the gate. Um, so you're, you're really, you're picking up, you're moving to a different life. And, uh, there are a lot of things that you got to figure out for yourself that they just don't tell you about. No, you're absolutely right. And when I went through that program, it wasn't until over a year later that I actually found myself sitting down for an interview. And, you know, I researched things, you know, I researched how to have a good resume, how to answer questions in an interview. But I honestly did not know how, how do I negotiate pay? Um, that's scary, especially when we don't talk about pay all that often. Yeah. Um, and, and the other point to make is how much less you're probably going to be making compared to when you're getting that paycheck every two weeks from the government. Right. Well, especially being overseas, you get paid more than, you know, compared to living stateside. Um, but one thing I noticed too, when I went for a job interview is, and this played a role through the next few years of my employment, my boss did not understand the experience that I came with um, because of the military. And it's very challenging to explain that to someone who doesn't understand that lifestyle or has never been associated with the military. And so you really have to learn how can I advocate for myself? And when I separated from the military, I was 25 and I was feeling pretty good. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not in my early 20s anymore. But I, 
you know, going back to figuring out who I was, my identity, I wasn't in this position where I felt confident to advocate for my worth in the civilian sector. I'm not sure anything can prepare you for that, uh, aside from just experience and uh, putting yourself in those conversations. Um, so just, again, the things you just have to learn on your own as, as you go on this journey. Uh, but did you go back to Colorado and do, you know, you finish your bachelor's degree there and then straight into a, a grad program? No. So I had finished my bachelor's degree right around the time that I was separating from the military and my bachelor's degree is in business administration. So knowing that I wanted to transition careers into, you know, the mental health field, um, I took two semesters at Colorado State University just to make sure that I really did want to go into the career of therapy. Um, and so I just wanted to be sure I didn't want to know, dive into a master's degree program and feel like, why am I here? This was a big mistake. So I gave myself that time, again, to just kind of adjust to civilian life. I started working and then I was taking classes. And, you know, at the end of that, I decided, okay, I do want to pursue a degree in marriage and family therapy. And then I want to ask you to describe a little bit more about the, uh, the zero suicide framework that you mentioned earlier. Uh, that was something you said you worked with at the nonprofit? Yes, yeah, so Zero Suicide, it is this you know, nationally recognized system. And the goal of the system is to reduce gaps in healthcare for people who are struggling with thoughts and feelings related to suicide. So it was found that a large percentage of people um, before they died within 30 days, but um, within 30 days, before their death, where they killed themselves, um, they had seen some sort of medical professional. And so this framework was created to reduce those gaps, to empower healthcare workers with tools and resources that they need um, to you know, understand when someone may be at risk for attempting suicide. And so it, it, it's kind of difficult to really narrow down exactly what this is. But essentially, I was looking, you know, at it from a systems level perspective of, you know, what tools and assessment tools do we need for the clinical staff so they, you know, are equipped with recognizing and using um, modalities that support guiding someone through these thoughts and feelings of suicide. Um, what do we need? What data do we need to be collecting? Um, what policies and procedures do we need to support the work that we're doing? Um, so it's consistent. So every clinician or psychologist, psychiatrist will follow the same process. And then, okay, how many, how many clients do we have who are dying? Okay, why? You know, we're auditing charts, auditing what, um, clinicians are doing to learn from that? How can we, you know, improve our system based on, you know, these horrible experiences? Are the military and veteran organizations, are they following this kind of a framework? Are they looking at everything that they can to fix 
their current issues with suicides? Yes. So from my understanding, I do know that the VA uses the zero suicide framework. The VA also employs a research team where all they're doing is studying suicide in the veteran population. And most VA locations also have a suicide prevention coordinator. Now this is a new position in the VA, relatively new. Um, so I think it's going to take some time you know, for this, for this position to be able to have a, a greater impact as the VA as a whole. But, you know, when you look at mental health on a military installation or the VA, these are big systems. You know, things get lost as you move down through the different levels of leadership. And, and I think that's kind of where we see a breakdown when it comes to veterans who are dying by suicide. You know, I really do believe that, you know, those employed with, whether it's a base or VA, they really are trying their best given the resources that they have. Um, but at the same time, suicide, it, it's complicated. It is complex. And the reason it's complex, you know, people might think, oh, you know, the mystery is why do people kill themselves? Well, that's not the mystery we know. People kill themselves to end their pain and suffering. But what is complicated is how can we predict who may attempt suicide? And if you look it up, there are so many different risk factors and warning signs that it gets complicated. And you know, this is where it can be confusing of giving this knowledge to the general public because there are so many different risk factors involved. There's probably no way to eliminate uh, suicides, right? There's only minimizing um, to our abilities. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think with most things, it's hard to completely, you know, eradicate. You know, we're never going to eradicate sexual assaults. And I think suicide kind of falls in that category as well. Um, so in the United States, we see about 40,000 deaths by suicide. Um, I expect that number to be higher this year in 2020 because of COVID. And, you know, in this field, we know that the number has significantly increased for the national crisis hotline of, you know, the number of calls they're receiving. I think it was like a 300% increase because of COVID. Um, and so I do expect those numbers to be a little bit higher this year. Wow. And we talk about preventative measures, but just tell me person to person, what is something that I might be able to do in, in my circle of people, whether it's at work, friends, family, what are some things that I would be able to do if someone is not just willing to come out and tell me, hey, I'm thinking about killing myself? Because that's not common at all. That is so hard to do. You know, even for a client in the room with me as their therapist, that is so challenging for them to say those words because it brings up all these other feelings of maybe like guilt and shame and other experiences they've had in their past that reinforces this internal narrative of there's something wrong with me. I'm a burden to these people. Um, 
you know, why, you know, just questioning their existence, their purpose, and their meaning. And I really believe, you know, if we check in on others, and whether it's in our social circles or our communities, um, so belongingness is an indicator, a potential indicator that someone could have thoughts or feelings. It's part of the interpersonal theory of suicide. And so if someone feels like they don't belong and they feel like they're a burden, and then the third factor is um, capacity to harm themselves. So this theory says with these three factors, this is how all these factors need to be present in order for someone to die by suicide. And so looking for, you know, are people isolating? You know, is a friend or family member no longer accepting your phone call or are they not texting you back? Um, you know, hearing people say things like, you know, I, I just feel like I'm a hassle for everyone or, you know, I don't, what's the point anymore? Um, so listening for those types of indicators from people, um, but it really just, in my opinion, it's really like checking in, staying in contact with people. Um, also, if you have, a lot of times people will have this gut feeling that something isn't quite right, but maybe they don't act on it. They don't ask that question like, hey, are you having thoughts that, you know, you think you'd be better off dead or maybe that you want to kill yourself? Um, so not being afraid to ask that question, because if you already have trust and support built up with that person, they're more likely to answer that question honestly to you. And then, I mean, talking about trust and support. So what about on the other side of someone who might be seeing a mental health professional? How, how honest are they being with their, their uh, doctors or therapists? Um, because you say that so many people who kill themselves have seen, have seeked treatment in the past 30 days, but where's, where's the gap? Yeah. So you bring up a really great point. And, you know, like I said before, it is challenging for someone to be able to stay in that space, you know, a therapeutic space that they, they want to kill themselves or they want to attempt it. And, you know, as, as a therapist, um, there are certain things to look out for, you know, additional risks to look out for, for people, certain mental health um, disorders are more associated with, you know, higher risk for attempting suicide. Um, but, you know, what I see is sometimes just asking the question, are you thinking about killing yourself is not enough. Um, sometimes you need to ask more, assess further. And so I, I had a client before where I asked, you know, are you, do you ever have thoughts about killing yourself? And they said, no. Well, then I continued to assess and ask questions. And I said, you know, do you ever, do you ever think about how you would kill yourself? And then that was enough to open up the conversation. Um, and he's like, you know, they went on to say like, yes, I've thought about this way, this way, or that way. And so sometimes people, first of all, as a therapist, it's going to be very, it can be very uncomfortable to ask that question. Um, to go there. But if you can't go there as the professional, how can your client go there? And so as a therapist, you do need to 
have the ability to create a relationship with your clients and build rapport with your clients so they feel comfortable enough. Um, a lot of times people might not want to say they have thoughts or feelings about suicide because they're afraid that they're going to be hospitalized. So, you know, another thing that's so, that I believe is so great about zero suicide and other modalities that are out there for therapists, um, well, frameworks like CAMS, um, collaborative assessment and management of suicidality, is that it empowers a therapist to talk about suicide and to work at it at the lowest level of care. So knowing that just because someone says they might think about suicide doesn't mean that that's a reason to hospitalize them. That's not, that's not, that's not enough. You need to assess further, like, have they thought about it? Have they planned it out? Have they rehearsed it? Do they know how they would kill themselves? Do they have access to means like that? And so there, there's a much more criteria as a professional that you need to assess for and understand before it would get to that point of hospitalizing someone. However, not all therapists are created equal or not all therapists have in-depth knowledge about suicide because we're not trained in suicide through grad school. You have to learn about it on your own. So it comes from a place of fear in a therapist when they hear suicide, oh man, I don't want this to be on me. I don't want this liability. I don't want to be sued. I'm going to hospitalize you because that's all I know what to do. So then with that, who are the trained professionals in suicide prevention and therapy? Do, is there a field of people who are trained on this specifically? Yes. So, you know, we have the governing organization. And so that governing organization that I that I'm personally a member of is the American Association of Suicidology. And that is a great way to connect with other professionals in the field who study suicide. Um, there, yes, it's suicidology is a field. Um, it's small compared to other fields, but I probably am biased by saying this because I'm a member and I'm, you know, in this field, but I do feel like we're gaining more traction and momentum. Um, and so there's training available through that organization. Um, there are more organizations. We have, you know, the National Crisis Hotline. Um, we have the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. Um, there are a lot of resources out there, not just for mental health professionals or medical professionals, but also for the community, um, you know, how to learn more, how to look for warning signs, um, or just, you know, how to talk to someone about suicide. It just doesn't sound like it would be the greatest uh, position for somebody to go seek help and admit, you know, that they're considering killing themselves or they've thought about it in the past and then just to be referred to someone who probably won't be uh, the greatest assistance, you know, would be hospitalized or something like that. Right. So for, for people who do, you know, live in the community, I guess, who are no longer, well, I guess you could be in the military too. It doesn't matter. Um, so a website people can go to look for 
therapist is psychologytoday.com. And you can actually filter, you know, you can filter, does this person work with veterans? Do they work with suicide? So you can filter to see who has that listed on their profile and then find someone who you think might be a good match for you. So I, something that we don't talk about enough, you know, in the field in general, or that when you're in the military, you don't really know is that not all therapists are going to work for you. You know, it's kind of like, dating around to find the therapist that you feel comfortable with, that you have a connection with. Many therapists in the civilian sector, they offer free consultations. Um, so you can talk with them and kind of get a feel if you're going to like them. But if you don't like a therapist, whether you're in the military still or not, you don't have to keep going to them. Um, I went to mental health when I was in the military. I didn't like a therapist. I switched. Um, you have the power to do that. And I just don't think people know that. The same goes at the VA. If you don't like the therapist, it might take a little time to transfer, but you can transfer to a new therapist. Um, another thing that's changed recently with the VA is they contract now with outside counseling agencies. So if you don't feel comfortable receiving care at the VA, you can go to one of their contracted sites, but always shop around for a therapist don't ever keep going to one if you don't feel like they're competent or if you just don't feel like it's a good match. It's your money. It's your decision. Um, you need to feel comfortable. And then what about people who just say, oh, I can handle this on my own? Um, there's got to be a population out there who just, they have this for multiple reasons, you know, these stigmas against seeing a professional who's licensed in handling our problems. Um, so are there things that people can just do on their own if they recognize these thoughts? So I want to start by saying that I think you see this a lot in the military population. Um, it's hard to reach out for help. Mental health is stigmatized in the military. People are afraid their unit's going to find out that they're going to be non-deployable, that it's going to impact their career in some way, shape, or form. And so it can be hard to admit that you have a problem or that you need to reach out for help. Um, I view therapy kind of like as if you're taking your car to the shop just for you know, a yearly checkup to check the oils, get everything tuned up. Um, that's kind of what therapy is like. You don't necessarily have to have a big problem to go. You know, it's checking in. You know, sometimes we just need a non-biased third party in our life who we can say anything to knowing that it's confidential and that can help you find answers or just work through struggles. It's okay to go for help. I've struggled getting help for a long time um, because it's hard because you have to admit to yourself that there's something that I can't handle on my own. But to wrap back around to your question, you know, if you see someone who's in your life who is isolating, withdrawing from you, maybe they're increasing their substance use, whether that's drugs or alcohol, and you just have this feeling like something's not right, you know, support that person, reach out to them, talk with them. Um, for people who don't want to see a therapist, there is the national crisis line, and that number is 
273-8255, or, you know, it's the last four digits are just the word talk. Um, there are state crisis lines, depending on the state you're in. Sometimes they ask your state might have a text crisis line as well. You know, you don't have to be in crisis to reach out. If you're having these thoughts that you want to harm yourself or kill yourself, and you're just stuck in your head, because that's what happens. You're stuck in this internal dialogue that you're not worthy, that you suck, that life is never going to improve. There's a lot of hopelessness and you need someone to pull you out of that. And sometimes just a friend being by your side, talking to you about something else can pull you out of that moment. Yeah, I think that community would be very important. Having relationships with people um, outside of your, yourself, uh, just to notice those signs because yeah, it's, it's gonna be a difficult conversation to have with anybody and that includes admitting to yourself that you have something that could harm you uh, internally. Uh, yeah, so I think, it, I think having that recognition is very, very important. Definitely. And if you are concerned about your friend, you know, if they open up to you and you can talk to them, you know, encourage them to seek out professional help. Um, you know, when you are experiencing thoughts and feelings related to suicide, a lot of times you might not be equipped with the knowledge of why this is happening. You know, a third of Americans will experience suicidal ideations at some point in their life. So it's actually kind of normal, especially depending on your experiences um, and what traumatic experiences you've had to have these thoughts and feelings. And so reach out to someone, encourage them to get help, call their crisis line, just know that you're not alone and you don't have to be alone. And so what's, what's next for you on this, this path? So you've got two years total before you can achieve your, your full license, and then, then what? Yes, yeah, so being within the mental health field as therapist, counselor, clinician, whatever you want to call it, um, it does take two years to be fully licensed, which means I don't need to have supervision or someone sign off on, you know, who I see. Um, so I am... Currently, some job interviews next week um, to start practicing as a marriage and family therapist, working with families and couples. And then my specialty is really working with people who are experiencing thoughts and feelings related to suicide. I also do grief work. I work with um, you know people who have lost a loved one to suicide as well. So helping helping them navigate that terrain, which is very messy. Um, but again, you know. Just, kind of reinforcing um, that they're not alone and that, you know, there are people around who can be there and support you. Um, I also have a consulting business, consulting on the topic of suicide. So I am able to go into training businesses, medical professionals, counselors, um, you know, how to have better suicide care in your practice, or also just how to get comfortable with suicide, you know, how to normalize this, how to bring awareness um, equipping you with the right tools that you need to be able to address suicide when it walks through your door. And so one of the things that we, we've touched on before is that uh, how we talk about it is very important. So what are some of the things that we're doing wrong right now? Yes. So typically within our society, you see it on the news all the time. You read it in 
news articles, people say, you know, so-and-so committed suicide. And we're really trying to get away from this language. And language matters. What we say matters. It sticks with people. You know, I'm sure most of us have this dialogue of things our parents said to us growing up. And so that's just an example of how, you know, words stay with you, words matter. And so we're trying to get away from that language. Using the word commit, um, it really has this stigma around it of like, you know, if you're being arrested or committed to a psychiatric facility, which used to happen back in the day. And so now we're really encouraging people to use the language, you know, died by suicide or just directly stating what happened. You know, someone killed themselves. Um, I think when we use more direct and correct language, that's going to continue normalizing and helping reduce the stigma of suicide. A lot of people still believe just talking about suicide is going to make people want to kill themselves. That is not true whatsoever. The more we can talk about it, you know, the more people will learn what to look for or how they can, you know, assist them when they know getting them into professional treatment if that's what's needed or just knowing, hey, I'm going to sit here with you. We don't have to talk, but I'm just going to be here because I care about you and I want to make sure that nothing happens to you. And we could certainly talk about these topics for a very long time if we if we allowed ourselves to but in, in the realm of uh, marriage and family counseling what all does that encompass yeah so i really view myself more as a relational therapist i'm in the business of relationships whether those are friendships romantic family dynamics so i really focus on looking at the whole the systems that are at work in someone's life so, you know, looking at a family, you know, how, how are the kids influencing the parents and vice versa, working with couples, but then still working with individuals, but maybe pulling in family members or friends into treatment or looking at how are um, these other players in your life, how, are, how is your maybe religion, culture, um, professional life, how is that influencing your well-being and who you are as an individual? I see. Families are extremely complex and very, very different from one another. So that has to be a difficult type of therapy to moderate. What are, yeah, what are some challenges in that? Well, you know, I, I think some of the challenges can be similar with working with families or couples because sometimes things get heated. Um, so you might have people yelling at one another, um, there was one time where I was afraid someone was going to punch a hole in the wall. <laughs> um, so things can get heated. There's a lot to balance in the room, but you know, you know, I got into this to help people for one, which, you know, most people, that's kind of like the cliche answer. I want to help people, but I also, you know, having my personal experiences of growing up and seeing, you know, the communication issues and breakdown in my own family, I wanted to be able to support and empower families um, to find a way through the chaos and the things the world throws at us. And knowing that you can still get through those experiences as a family unit. Um, and sometimes, not all the time, there are some instances where that's not possible. Um, 
but just trying to support families that you can make it through this rough patch and still be a unit. Isn't so much of it all stemmed from communication? Pretty much. You know, that's why I still feel like I'm, I'm in this field of communication, just in a different capacity. Um, that's what people come in for. You know, they might use different terms or phrase it differently, but typically it's always a breakdown in communication, you know, when it comes to couples and in families or even just in an individual's personal life, you know, with the different interactions they have, um, you know, there, there's some quote where, you know, they say most of life is reacting to circumstances and that's true. And my job is to help make sense of these reactions. Um, Cause when you think about it, that's, that's kind of what we're doing in life. We're reacting to things that come our way. Fantastic. So what are the, what's some advice that you would give to um, people who, I mean, we could ask about advice from many different parts of your life. So uh, whether it's members of the military who are considering separation, maybe they're overseas, who knows? Um, People who have these uh, thoughts of suicide um, coming from the military background. Uh, I mean, these, these all kind of connect together. So do you have any advice for, for the audience out there of military members in transition periods? Yeah, you know, I, I would say for people who are transitioning out of the military or thinking about separating, just know that it is possible. You're gonna hear all sorts of different opinions, but it's totally different once you're on the other side. Um, you know, reach out for support. There are so many veteran resources in your community. If you just look for them, search for them, um, you know, usually on your town's government webpage, they have a veteran section. Um, you know, reach out to those agencies who want to support you because there will be times where you need it. Um, and just know that, you know, some risks are worth taking. It will feel like a risk separating, um, but just keep at it, you know, work hard. It is possible to come out on the other side and be happy about your decision and create a life that, you know, is worth living for you. Um, you know, and for people who are struggling with thoughts and feelings of suicide, um, you know, when you're experiencing that, you want to isolate, you don't want to be around people, you feel like no one understands you and they're never going to understand you. But just know that if people do reach out, you know, just try to reach back out, try to trust someone with this information. Um, you know, people end their life because they, they get to this point, there is no other way. And they want that pain and suffering to end. And it is hard to go out for help and then to start working on, you know, where these thoughts are stemming from. That is so challenging, but just know that if you try it, it will be worth it. That's very well said. And uh, do you have any, um, way that people can contact you or uh, seek help in other ways? Yeah, so the best way to contact me is through email, victoriasecretsconsulting at gmail.com. Um, you know, 
that name. People typically don't forget it, it stands out a little bit. Um, and also, you know, if you are struggling, you know, and you want to look for a therapist, um, whether if you receive medical care through the VA, you can go there, you can look at the sites they contract with on their website, or, you know, the National Crisis Hotline, like I said before, is 1-800-273-TALK. Talk. All right. And famous last question, is there anything else that uh, we didn't touch on that you would like to, to say? That is a really great question. It's always the best. Uh, right. So one thing that kind of stands out to me, you know, we were talking about serving and you mentioned, you know, going into the reserve, still having that link to the military. And, you know, for me, I've, I view it as I'm still serving, but I'm serving in a different capacity. You know, I still want to work with veterans. Um, I want to work with military families because I understand that lifestyle. Um, I understand the struggles. I've seen how hard it's been for friends of mine who, you know, their spouses were in the military and they deployed, they were gone for long periods of time. Um, you know, I have the experience, you know, of having my brother who deployed for, for a year back in like 2002. So I've, although I don't wear the uniform anymore, I feel like I have educated myself, um, so that I can still help those that I care about just in a different way. Yeah. And I feel like if, you know, we're such a demographic that only other military members, you know, know what we've gone through. That, that's something that I think a lot of us uh, have running through our heads is that no one's going to understand us like another veteran. So I feel like uh, catering to military families veterans uh, would really work to your advantage as someone that they can confide in and, and understand, you know, you got that mutual understanding. So, yeah, I think that's a, a great point to make. And you've certainly taken that path. Um, your career is, I can kind of see the way that it's flowed into where you're, where you're still headed. Um, so congrats on making it work. Happy to see uh, all the success and I look forward to seeing more. So many thanks to Victoria Sechrist. Not an easy talk at all, but an important one on a subject that probably hits us all in different ways. I'm so glad Victoria reached out to me on the website, lar.media slash contact, L-A-H-R dot media slash contact. If you'd like to speak to her on the subject of relationship therapy and or suicide prevention, Send her an email at victoriasecristconsulting at gmail.com. That's secrist. Make sure you get the name right. S-E-C-R-I-S-T. You can just read it from the episode title. You know that? I appreciate you tuning in, downloading, subscribing, rating, and sharing the Boots Off podcast. Music for the podcast is produced by my old pal Chase Landon, Army veteran, when I say this is a podcast for veterans by veterans, that's what we mean. Check out more of what's going on at lar.media, L-A-H-R.media. That's where you'll find the Signal Mirror blog post for this week's episode on Wednesday. Next week, we welcome a Marine who left active duty 
for the golf course. I mean, Air Force Reserve. We'll talk to you then.